sermon will be uh, Deuteronomy 24, chapter, uh, verse 10 to 22. Um, you can find that in the Blue Pew Bibles on page 159. So the first column on 159, Deuteronomy 24, verse 10. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and you will be regarded as a righteous, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field, and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to Geddon, Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you, when you beat the olives from the trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were the slaves in Egypt, that is why I command you to do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, you want to keep um, that passage open. And uh, welcome to church. My name is Pastor Pete. It's great to have you join us. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, in Deuteronomy, you remind us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So give us hearts that are ready to hear the living God speak. Holy Spirit, come prepare us so that it may be good soil that your word finds. And please use my words in a, a series of chapters that may be hard to understand. We pray that these things won't just remain in our heads. But having heard you speak, it might go right into our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, a movie came out this year. I don't know if some of you saw it, called Yesterday. Uh, in the movie, the main character, Jack Malik, he wakes up from an accident, and he wakes up in a world where the Beatles never existed. Now, can you imagine a world where the Beatles never existed? Because the Beatles, you see, completely changed music the way the songs were written and the way the songs were performed, the ways that songs were recorded and produced. They shaped youth culture. They shaped pop culture forever. So, I mean, imagine 
a world without Beatles. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, okay, boomer. <laughs> so what? Some of you are like, who are the Beatles? They're important, okay? Now, the question I want to ask us as we begin today is, what if we didn't have Old Testament laws? What if they never existed? Because many Christians would be like, that's no big deal, right? So what? Old Testament laws just aren't relevant to us anymore. Right? Laws about food, kosher foods, non-kosher foods, stuff you can and can't eat. I mean, we eat everything, right? We're Asians. We actually eat everything. Uh, laws about materials that you can't mix when you make clothes. Laws about oxen that you can't muzzle while they're trading grain. Like, what does that have to do with us? So what if these laws never existed? Well, you know what? These 13 chapters we're looking at today, chapters 13 to 26 in Deuteronomy, is all about laws, and it's in the Old Testament, and they govern Israel's life as they prepare to go into their promised land. And yeah, we write to ask, what does that have to do with us? What do we do with them? So I want to start with point one on your outlines. Before we look at some of these laws in detail, just ask the question, well, what do we do with Old Testament laws? And this is maybe something that you've been thinking about for a long time, especially if you've um, read parts of the Old Testament. There are two errors. All right, there are two errors we can make. One is thinking this law, and the other error is thinking no law. What do I mean by this law? The Bible is pretty clear. If you are a follower of Jesus now, on this side of Jesus, on this side of the, uh, so we're a New Testament people, Christians are not under this law. And by this law, I mean the law of Moses, okay? Christians are not under the law of Moses because we are not Israel. So one error we make is that this law is our law. Well, no, no, no. These laws have to do with Israel and their covenant, right? Their agreement, relationship with God for their life in the promised land, the land of Canaan, with God as their king in a very direct way. They were a theocracy. They were ruled by God politically. All right, so that was, this, that was their law. For them, obeying that law was how that they were right with God and how they stayed right with God. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's changed, hasn't it? Because we're not under the same old covenant. Jesus brings in the new covenant, all right? A new set of relationships with God. And in fact, Jesus, and this is why it's so wonderful to be a Christian, he perfectly fulfilled the old covenant laws. He was the only one who obeyed them perfectly, but he did it so that we could be right with God, not on the basis of our obedience, but on the basis of his obedience, his performance. God counts as ours now. God accepts you in the new covenant. God accepts you because Jesus was perfect, not because you need to be perfect. Now, that is really great news. And I'm sort of here, again, just to remind you, if you are not a follower of Jesus yet, right, that is how you come to relationship with God. That's how you become right with God. Jesus' performance, His perfection becomes yours. Your sins become His, right? You get the good end of the deal. And you can do that today. You can become a Christian on the basis of that. All right, so the point is, we are not under that law. The law of Moses is not our law. And by the way, that includes the Ten Commandments. Right? Have a think about that. Okay, the second error, though, is to think that there are no laws but you see, the, 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 new, the New Testament is very clear. In the New Covenant, there are laws. There, there are new laws 
new commandments. So um, the Apostle Paul says that he is free from the law of Moses, but that he is not free from the law of Christ. You see, if you're followers of Jesus, there are also laws. Look at the sign behind me. Let's all together read it out. Together. What does it say? If you... If you... Keep my commands. I should have looked first. If you love me, keep my what? Commands. Jesus has commands. You can't have a relationship with someone, especially when it's God. You can't love someone if you don't know how to please them, what they like and dislike. And at the very basic level, Jesus' commands show us what he likes, what he dislikes, what makes him happy, what makes him unhappy. And so if we love him, we'll pay attention to that. So what are Jesus' laws and commands? That's the big question, isn't it? I guess the better question is to ask, how do Jesus' laws and commands relate to the Old Testament law, the law of Moses? Is there any relationship or is it completely different? Well, the answer is, well, they do relate. Because Jesus says he hasn't come to abolish the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, but to fulfill it. And so the New Testament is not no law. The New Testament is actually God's law written on our hearts. Yeah? You heard that phrase before? God says, I will write my law on, our, on your hearts. Right? It's the law of the Spirit who gives life. And the law that He writes in our hearts is the Old Testament law. So the New Testament law of Christ will take the Old Testament law and take it beyond the letter of the law to the Spirit of the law. What I mean, I'll give you an example. Often in the New Testament, Jesus will take God's Old Testament law and apply it in deeper ways and in new ways. But the new way is often a better way or a deeper way or, 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 or more, uh, more life-changing. So, for example, um, the Old Testament law says, do not commit adultery. And Jesus says, well, I tell you, if you lust after someone, that's as much as committing adultery. Do you see? He takes the law of adultery and he makes it even deeper because God cares now about our hearts. Or in Deuteronomy 25, which we won't get to look at, it says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading grain. So, you know, you're farming and the ox is treading grain. Don't put a muzzle on it. Why? Because the, the ox can actually eat while it's treading grain. But you know how the New Testament applies that in two places. It applies that when it comes to financially supporting pastors and elders in your church. Right? Look it up yourself if you want to know how it applies. It. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy 5. But you see what I mean? The New Testament will take Old Testament laws and it will apply them in new ways or often go deeper than that. So here's how we do it. So this is, this is for you to be able to do this on your own when you read Old Testament laws. So let me give you an illustration. It's a little bit like light. Okay, light gets bent. Refracted is the technical word. Yeah, you remember this at school? Yeah, you do. Okay, light gets bent right through a lens. Old Testament laws need to be refracted through Jesus. You got that? So the light comes in, the Old Testament law. You need to refract it through Christ because Jesus makes a difference. And then see how it's applied in the New Testament. Or to give you a bit more flesh on the bones, here's a way of thinking about it. When you come to an Old Testament law, what you want to do is you want to ask yourself the question, well, what does this particular law, what did it teach God's people then, that's Israel, about what it meant to love God and love their neighbors in their context then. Right? What did it mean for them? So don't jump directly to me first. Think, what did it mean for them? And when you get that, you'll actually see it's much more than a letter of the law. It's actually some principle, 
right? Something that God wants them to understand or to live out. Then you go to the lens. Well, what difference does Jesus make to this law? And more often than not, right, Jesus will make a huge difference to the law. Example, food laws. What difference does Jesus make to the do not eat pork, do not eat lobster and crab, all the stuff that we like to eat um, laws? Well, he says, right, all foods are clean. That's a big difference, isn't it? And then you go to the New Testament and you see, well, well, we're not Old Testament people anymore, but now that Jesus has made a difference, what does it mean for me as God's people now to love God and love my neighbor in light of the principles that I saw from the Old Testament refracted through Jesus? Do you see what I mean? Okay, so that's, that's, that's how we do it. All right. So that's just to give you an overview, because what I want you to do in this sermon, obviously it can't ca- uh, cover 13, 14 chapters, but I want to give you an opportunity to be able to look back on these chapters, read it yourself, and be able to make some sense of it. So we're going to now um, go to these chapters. Now that we've done all that, that's all by way of introduction. And I'll remind you, um, we're up to point two where we've come so far in Deuteronomy. So basically the whole series of Deuteronomy sermons until last week was all chapters 1 to 11. That's the preparation, the introduction. Next week, we're going to see the conclusion. But you see, the chapters we're in, well, we did chapter 12 last week, but 13 and 26, or the wider section, 12 to 26, is actually the central section of the book. A lot of people want to skip over these chapters, but for Israel... And the logic of the book of Deuteronomy, these chapters are, in some sense, the most important. Because remember, they had just come out of Egypt, right? They, God has promised them this land, but then they took a detour 40 years later. A whole generation has died out because of disobedience, and now they're about to enter this land again. And this new generation needed to hear how the laws that God had given them, their fathers, the first generation... Now, how are these laws going to be reapplied for them in a new generation as they enter the land? That's why these 12 to 26, these chapters are so important. They're the central section. Everything in chapters 111 prepare them for that. Everything coming after 27 to 34 is to conclude that. So, again, we want to help you read it yourself. So I've given you, on the right side of your bulletins, an outline of these chapters. This is just so you have things to hang things on as you read it yourself. You'll see that it deals with a lot of broad topics, right? Firstly, starting with God, and it will end with God. We'll see the significance of that in a moment. It'll go to leadership. Then there'll be a lot of commands that really tie together with with the land and how it affects the land. That's the promised land. Then the community of Israel, then some social economic things before finishing on God. I won't go through all of that in detail. What I do want to do, again, to help you see how to put these chapters together, is to show you something called the triangle. I hope you came in today thinking, we're going to work hard today because it's going to be a bit of a mental exercise and I'm putting a lot of information in your hands, right? But again, I want you to be excited about reading God's Word, that you can actually make sense of it yourself. Have a look at the triangle. This is a really helpful way of understanding how all Old Testament laws work. Old Testament laws for Israel express what it means for them to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. Okay, If you've done Next Gen Strand 2 or um, NTE Strand 2, you'll understand what that means. God's people in God's place under God's rule, which means there are three cornerstones, right, or three points. All the laws 
right, function within the three points of God at the top, them as the people of God, and then the land, particularly the land of Canaan. And laws will express one, two, or often even all three of those points. Okay, God, people, land. I'll just give you an example. Uh, from chapter 15, which you might have looked at in your community groups this week, just look, I've just highlighted the bits that touch on either God, people, or land. Let's just read it and see how, how it is all integrated, isn't it? If there is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. Then they may appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. You see, right? This is just one paragraph, one law in a sense, on generosity in light of the seventh year of cancelling debts. But it refers to all three, God, people, land. And therefore, Old Testament laws really have one, two, or three focal points. Really, if you want to boil it down even further... There is the theological angle, because it has to do with God. There is the social angle, because it has to do with people. And then there is the economic angle, because it has to do with the land. See, God is telling His people, all three matter. And that's really all of our lives, right? There's nothing really that escapes that, for Israel or for us. See, worship, holiness, obeying God, that matters. That's the theological. But then you can't just do that in isolation from the social because things like good government and, and justice particularly is a big theme in these chapters. Justice, doing what's right. Families, that's all part of the social. Relationships. But you can't just ignore also things like work and employment and business and farming for them and money, right? Because that's the economical. And all of life takes place within that grid. All right, you got that. So that's the second part of my introduction. We're up to point three. What I want to do is, all of that's just to help you get an orientation so you can read it for yourself. Now, what I'm going to do is dip into chapters 13 to 26. I'm going to pick one social, one economic, and one theological theme, and we'll, we'll see how it speaks to us. All right? So here we go. So if you've been sleeping up to now, you can wake up. All right, firstly, the social. When it comes to the social community laws, one of the key ideas that stand out is this. What I do affects you. What you do affects me. What we do affects us. That we are all connected. Uh, don't turn to it, but I'll give you an example from Deuteronomy 21. In Deuteronomy 21, there's laws about what happens when you discover someone has been murdered, but you don't know who did it. It's an unsolved murder case. Even then, there are laws about how they had to make atonement, offer a sacrifice for the blood shed, even you, when you don't know who shed it. Um, the, the point is that sin, we don't know who sinned, but the sin affects the community, even affects the land. And God was trying to teach them it did matter. 
All right? An animal had to be sacrificed to atone for that sin, even though we don't know who sinned. Yeah? Right? You see, everything is tied together. We're all connected. Because God's people, you see, are like a big family. God is their father. Each member of the family is therefore a brother or a sister. We have a mutual responsibility to care for each other. So, let's turn to um, chapter 22, verses 1 to 4. Have a look at that passage. If you see your fellow Israelites ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to its owner. If they do not live near you, if you don't know who owns it, take it home with you and keep it until they come looking for it. Then give it back. Do the same if you find their donkey or cloak or anything else they have lost. Do not ignore it. If you see your fellow Israelites donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help the owner get it to its feet. All right? I hear they do this a lot in Japan. If you find stuff lost, you'll always get it back. Uh, it's impossible to get stuff back in China. All right? They were to care for each other. And this care, by the way, um, there's a lot of laws about what you should and shouldn't do, but do you remember when we read chapter 15? Your heart matters as well. You can't legislate on the heart, but God cares about the heart. When it came to generosity, it said, right, be open-handed, be open-hearted, give generously without a grudging heart. God cares about the way we care for each other because we are all connected and He cares about our attitudes as we care for each other. So that's the Old Testament law for the people of Israel then. It'll still be expressed in terms of lost sheep, lost oxen, and so on. But we can see how this is easily refracted through Jesus, don't we? Like you just think about Jesus. When he was asked, who is my neighbor? Because Jesus says, love your neighbor, right? And someone says, well, who is my neighbor? Remember the parable Jesus told to illustrate who your neighbor is and how, how far you're to extend care for someone. Jesus told the parable of what? The good Samaritan. And if you don't know the good Samaritan, read up on it, Luke chapter 10. But basically, Jesus' point is anyone God puts in your path is your neighbor. Even when they're someone so different from you, someone who's your racial enemy, but you have a radical obligation to meet their needs, even when they're a Samaritan and you are, or so when you are a Jew and they're a Samaritan. Do you see what I mean? Like Jesus takes that and he goes even further, doesn't he? And then you come to the New Testament and, and you see passages like Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Remember, there is a law of Christ, but it's the Old Testament law made more intense, now applied to us. And the Bible says to Christians, carry each other's burdens. Because we're all connected. Right? We're all responsible for each other. Now, I believe that this has so much to say to us as God's people today. It does, doesn't it? Because you think about it. Our culture, what does our culture value? What does a worship in terms of principles and ideals? It worships individuality, doesn't it? That's what our culture is all about. Western culture, Australian culture. There's nothing more important than personal freedom, personal fulfillment, personal pleasure. That's the ultimate good. I need to find what's true to me and do that. And I can do whatever feels good to me as long as it doesn't directly harm you. Now, that may sound good. Oh, that's kind of selfless. Well, no, it's not because the starting point is what? 
me. The starting point is me, not we. Now, I don't know about you, but can you see how much that cultural thinking that's everywhere, right? It's what everyone believes. It's in our media. It's in the books you read. It's even in the self-help stuff. It's everywhere. Can you see how that's seeped into our own consciousness as Christians? It has, hasn't it? Let's be honest. It's me. It's you. But you see, for God's people, then and now, I am to realize what? No, you belong to me. I belong to you. We are members of a family. We are parts of a body. What I do affects everyone around me, especially when it comes to the church, the people of God. It's so easy to think in the cultural narrative, to think, oh, come on, Pete, I'm just one person. It doesn't really make a difference if I decide to leave this church one day. Or if I decide I won't serve, I'll just kind of be a pew warmer. Or if I don't give and contribute financially, or if I don't participate, or if I have secret sin in my life, or I've just turned up 20 minutes late to church every week. It doesn't make a difference. I'm just one person. But you see... You see the problem with that? God's view is, no, 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 no. We're all connected. It's helpful to ask ourselves a question, isn't it? Okay, what if every single other person at church thought and acted the way I did? Would that be a healthy church? What if everyone thought, it doesn't matter if I'm involved? What if everyone thought, it doesn't matter if I give? What if everyone thought, it doesn't matter if I turn up late, if I don't participate, if I hide sin? Do you see what I mean? You might just think, it's just me. If I leave, no one will even know the difference. Well, what if everyone left for the reasons you want to leave? See, when it comes to church, what if the starting point was not me, but we? Because so many people in our church, in churches all around Australia, it's because we've, we've imbibed, we, we've sucked into this cultural narrative. We move on from a committed relationship with our local churches because why? It stops meeting my need. You heard that? It's time for me to move on. This church no longer meets my need. Well, can I just tell you something? No church will meet all of your needs for all of your life. It's impossible. Right? Some of you are kind of young adults and at this congregation, it's pretty nice to have your, meets, um, your, your needs met in, as a young adult. You're not going to be a young adult forever. And at some point, you're going to think, well, gee, I'm just not as connected anymore. It's not meeting my needs. Or maybe at this congregation, you're kind of older, and yeah, for sure, it's, it's harder. Right? It doesn't meet my need. But perhaps, if we're to think we and not me, perhaps we should stop treating church, or maybe our problem is we treat church as something that's supposed to serve me. Like, is church supposed to be an event to serve me, a group of people to meet my needs? Is that what church is actually about? Or rather, am I not to think I am here to meet everyone else's need? That's why I'm here. Okay, I may not have people in my age and stage of life, but you know what? I can look around beyond that and think I can be an encouragement to someone not in my stage of life. Or I could even, if I'm older, I can be a mentor to someone younger. How can I serve them? Do you see how radical we would be pushed to apply the law of Deuteronomy if we really paid attention to what it means? Okay, that's the first one. The social. The second one is the economic. 
And the point that Deuteronomy wants to make in these chapters is that the vulnerable need special care. To be vulnerable is to be powerless, to be especially um, uh, open uh, to being abused or taken advantage of, all right? Now, you see that especially, um, you're going to see that in section 5, right? So the bit highlighted for you, that's especially going to figure up uh, feature the vulnerable, but you also saw that in chapter 15 we looked at earlier. So I want you to um, keep your Bibles open where we had it open before, chapter 24, um, that we read. Let me just skip through some of those verses. You might have noticed it's all about the vulnerable, isn't it? Verse 10, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Verse 14, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Verse 15, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they're poor and counting on it. Verse 17, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of a widow. Verse 19, when you're harvesting in your field, you overlook a sheaf, don't go back and get it. Leave it for foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, so on, okay? God cares especially for, don't you see, in this society, and this was pretty radical, by the way, by ancient standards. We take for granted we have social welfare and all that kind of stuff. That came through a Judeo-Christian worldview. Right, the Greek or Roman worldview didn't value these things. Right, but God cared that his people cared for the vulnerable. And so through these chapters, you're going to see instructions about the slaves and uh, workers and poor, especially children, foreigners, orphans, widows, animals. God cares for as well. Right? Even those guilty of accidental manslaughter. You accidentally kill someone because you, you know, drop an axe on their head. All right? Even then, and you're vulnerable of just, you know, being revenge killed, God protects those as well. Okay, that's, yeah. And the reason, you see, in verse 18, and repeated in verse 22 of the passage you got open, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. In other words, this is how God treated you when you were vulnerable. Now, you've got to understand these commands about caring for the vulnerable, especially if you've studied economics and finance and commerce, these commands make no economic sense. If you're a business owner, you don't do these things. Like chapter 15, right? You read in a CG. Every seventh year, you're supposed to cancel everyone's debt. Wow. Any fellow Israelite that sells them to you as indentured labor because they can't pay off their own debt. That's basically their way of declaring bankruptcy. Every seventh year, they're to be freed. And you are to do this even if you made the loan in the sixth year on the 363rd day. Come the seventh year, debt-free. Can you, like, that is what it's talking about. That makes no economic sense, does it? And how about this one? They weren't to charge each other interest when making loans. And in chapter 24, we just read, you don't even get a deposit, right? Some, some their cloak or something that, you know, to make sure they pay up. You don't take that from them because that, that's going to keep them warm. That's their livelihood. So they could really take advantage of you. And you weren't supposed to maximize profit from harvest because you're supposed to leave those things for the people to come and basically have a free meal. So can you imagine for a moment when banks and corporations do that? Right? That makes no economic sense. Westpac certainly didn't do that. Sorry, I just had to dig out Westpac. Sorry if you work for Westpac. Um, 
And yet they were to do it anyway. They were to do it anyway, though they made no economic sense because their faith was in the God who was generous and would provide and make up for it. Okay? Now, when it comes to Jesus, do you see how Jesus modeled this kind of radical care for the poor and needy and vulnerable at great expense to himself? In fact, he died for us, the Bible says, when we were still powerless. When we were most vulnerable and powerless, Jesus came and died for us. And in his life, he cared for the orphans, the widow, the fatherless, and he made time for them, went out of their way for them. And on that basis, we are called in the New Testament to do the same for others, yeah? So look at James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, you, you've got to know that Jesus' people all throughout the centuries are at their best when they have led the way in this. So in ancient Rome, Christians were the ones who rescued abandoned babies, cared for the poor, provided for widows, cared for those who had plague. They would risk their own life to help those with plague. And a pagan Roman emperor, towards the end of the Roman Empire, when a lot of Christians were around, he was so frustrated because they were not only caring for their poor, the Christians, they were also caring for our poor as well. Right? The Roman emperor was like, how can you fight that? Now, how are we to apply this today? Well, today, to apply this isn't necessarily to embrace socialism or communism over capitalism. Or I remember Australia is not the same as Israel living in God's place under God's rule under a theocracy. It may have... If you're a business owner, by the way, if you get any influence in business, I think there's things that you want to apply. I'm not going to talk about that now, but you can have a think about that. But I think what it's supposed to do is, is that we are to have a social conscience, aren't we? We do want to and need to care for the vulnerable. We need to advocate for them, speak up for them, because there are so many who don't get anyone to speak up for them. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to social justice, we have a really unfortunate situation in our world right at the moment. You probably know it or feel it. And that is we are hopelessly divided, aren't we? When it comes to social justice issue, we are such an either-or culture. You are either on the left, the progressives, or you are on the right, the conservatives. And so we have to... It's, it's, it's either. So, for example, it's you either care for the unborn and care about abortion laws, or you care for vulnerable women and you want to work out how to help them, right? Either or. You either care about climate change or you're someone who cares about religious freedom. You either care about domestic violence or you care about censorship and pornography. Right? We're made to choose and so many of the things that happen on social media, people just fall onto sides, Christians included. And so those who care about the unborn say nothing about vulnerable women. Those who care about climate change don't give a you know, rip about religious freedom. Those who care about domestic violence, they're never going to speak up about censorship. Do you see? That's hopeless because Jesus' people need to care about both. Every single one of those examples, issues, the people that are going to suffer the most are the vulnerable, climate change included. Because you know, if we do nothing about climate change, guess who's going to get the roar into the deal? The poor the poorest nations especially. All of these social issues across that left-right divide 
all impact the vulnerable, and God's people are to care about all of them. So we need to be balanced. We need to care both about the left issues and the right issues, right? Because it's all about the vulnerable. That's just on a macro level. You can work out what that means for you on a micro level. Well, the final one, though. Let's remember the theological angle. Because, look, the structure of chapters 12 to 26, you remember, it starts with God, it ends with God. It's framed or bookended by God and worship. Everything else is in between that. So what does this tell us about God's laws? It tells us this, that even when it's not about God, it's about God. Yeah? Even when it's about the muzzling of the ox, or not muzzling the ox, it's about God. When I am loving my neighbor, that's actually part of loving God. Loving God and loving my neighbor are inextricably linked. And I cannot love God with my heart, soul, strength, or as I said a few weeks ago, single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, unreservedly, if it does not affect every part of my life. It needs to be in every relationship, in every context of my life, whether it's my home, my work, my study, my leisure, every second, every minute, every hour, every week, every month, every year. It's all theological. It's all about God. You see that in the New Testament, don't you? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Can you offer any more than that? Right? Your whole selves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The Latin phrase, it's two words really, coram deo, coram deo. All of our lives are lived coram Deo. It means lived in the presence of God, literally before the face of God. Right? Coram Deo. Or as um, a Dutch theologian and politician said, his name is Abraham Kuyper from the 19th century, he says this, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Uh, for Kuiper, this person who said this, it meant that he got into public life and became a politician, even though he was a theologian. Because he was convinced that Jesus owns everything. So we've got to come back to the question that actually Pastor Marshall posed to us at the end of his sermon last week. Are there areas of your life that you just comfortably, conveniently ignore and hide from God? You see, these chapters, 12 to 26, are so detailed and so thorough to remind God's people Israel that no part of their life in the promised land should be lived outside of Koram Deo. Now we, God's people today, we've been given so much more than they, haven't we? I mean, we, we've been promised, not the land of Canaan, but the new creation. We've been redeemed from sin and hell and death by the blood of Jesus, God's own Son. Well, how much more should we not leave any part of our lives unsurrendered to Him? I wonder if you know this, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you know this? God wants to micromanage your life. Think about that. God wants to micromanage your life. 
And the question today is, are you letting him? Lisa said it right, didn't she, when she um, shared about what she learned. There is no Monday to Saturday Lisa versus Sunday Lisa. How you are at church in your relationships at CG, your ministry, when you read the Bible with someone, you pray with someone. Is that consistent with the way you speak to your parents? Even if your parents are elderly and you're an adult. If we record every conversation you had in your workplace, in every interaction on Instagram or Facebook, would that be Coram Deo? We can't leave any part of our lives outside of the domain of a surrendered life to God. He wants to micromanage your life. Now, in case that to you just feels oppressive and horrible and unattractive, just remember, all of these commands, remember, are framed by worship. Yeah? And you remember last week, worship is not just about what they were to do in the temple or the place that God would appoint. Or actually, what they were to do at the place that God appoint. It was, it was so much about festivals. Yeah? Remember that? It was, it was so much about enjoyment of celebration, of feasting, of basking in His blessings, enjoying all that He's given us. That's worship. Worship is about joy. So let's just keep that in mind. God is asking you today to choose obedience in every single part of your life. Why though? Why is He asking that? Is it to oppress you? Is it to take away your joy? No, quite the opposite. Because when you choose obedience, you are choosing real joy. When you choose obedience, you are choosing real blessing. When you choose obedience, you are choosing real life. And if we willingly, led by the Spirit of God, allow God to micromanage our lives, right? Guaranteed, your life will be more joyful, more peaceful, more wonderful, more blessed even in the midst of suffering, than you could possibly imagine, than you could if you tried to micromanage your own life. So you're willing to take that gamble and allow God to do that. Let's get the band up. Let's get ready to sing. Let's pray.